0: My name is Mohsen al I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. In the following two podcasts, I examine the sources of international law. International law is distinct from municipal law, from domestic law, from state law, in that we do not have a supreme lawmaking authority. As a result, The sources of international law tend to be something of a hodgepodge. It is a blend, then, of elements. There are treaties, there are customs, there are general principles, there are writings of publicists, and yes, there are judicial decisions. Now, How then we handle this mixed bag, this buffet of sources, is going to be the topic of the next two episodes. All right, let's go ahead and get started. So now we're moving on. In the previous sessions, we examined a little bit of, or we looked into the history of international law, the nature of international law, the theory of international law, and such. Now we're starting to get into something more related to the operations of the international legal framework or the mechanics, if you will. We will consider how international law is made and the implications of how international law is made for the sources of international law. Now, our starting point, then, is relatively straightforward. We look to nation-states. Why do we look to nation-states? Because of sovereignty. So We've explored this before. The nature, then, of state sovereignty simply means, following the Treaty of Westphalia, that there is no authority greater, higher, more supreme than the state itself. The state is sovereign of its own affairs, it is sovereign over its jurisdiction. Now, that much is clear, so we understand that states will be involved in the lawmaking, but unfortunately international law somewhat goes silent, even mute, on how it is made. There is no clarity surrounding this. Now the approach then that publicists or international lawyers have adopted has been effectively to rely on provisions within the International Court of Justice statute, specifically Article 38. Article 38 identifies the relevant instruments then for international law. Now let us bear in mind this list, which is made up of four elements, is non-exhaustive. Before I tackle, then, the sources of international law as identified within Article 38 of the statute, it is important, probably even imperative, then, for me, to speak to you first about two cases. There are two cases here that are relevant. Publicists or international lawyers therefore turn to the ICJ statute, specifically Article 38 that specifies the relevant instruments when examining international law. And so this is used largely, this provision within the statute, is used then as a means of identifying the sources of international law. There are four of them. Treaties between states, customary international law that is derived from the practices of states, general principles of international law, and in a throwback to the colonial days, recognized by civilized nations, and then finally the judicial decisions and the writings of the most highly qualified publicists, which as I said earlier, are specifically or simply international lawyers. Now, before we tackle those four categories, it is necessary, even imperative, for us to examine two cases. Two cases of the PICJ, the Permanent International Court of Justice, or in fact the predecessor of the International Court of Justice, today's International Court of Justice. Now the first case is the Boz Court and Lotus case, often referred to um, shorthand as the Lotus case. Now the Lotus case involved two ships, Turkish ship and a French ship, both of which collided in the high seas, I believe they are in the Mediterranean, so they collide in the high seas and there were a number, I believe somewhere around a dozen, Turkish sailors who were killed as a result. Now, the Turkish government ultimately instituted criminal proceedings against the captain of the Turkish ship as well as the first officer of the French ship. France protested. They protested that, in fact, Turkey did not have any type of jurisdiction over a French citizen who happens to be on the high seas. Now, Turkey saw this differently. They continued with the criminal trial, and ultimately, both individuals were found guilty, uh, sentenced to a number of months' incarceration and a fine. Diplomatically, Turkey and France agreed that they would approach the Permanent Court of International Justice. They would present, then, the conflict they had before the court for resolution. The issue, then, according to the French, Turkey has no authority over French citizens, not within its territories. Now, it's important to bear in mind the issue, while at the same time examining, honing in on the question, then, that informed the court's ruling. The question, then, that the court examined was whether or not launching proceedings was prohibited by international law. Now, What we note is that the court did not ask, does international law permit Turkey to begin proceedings? Rather was launching the proceedings prohibited by international law? If there was no prohibition, then they did nothing wrong. Now, before we tackle that, let us consider this through the lens of a domestic system. Within the UK, there is, within most sovereign states, there is, in the UK and a number of other sovereign states, what is known as the presumption of freedom. What this means is that you are free to do whatever you please unless there is a law that says otherwise. For example, There is not a law that says that you are permitted to walk along a footpath, while there is a law that says you are prohibited from jaywalking, for example. There is no crime without a law that specifically prohibits a particular behaviour. We have then what is known as a permissive system, meaning behaviour is permitted unless explicitly prohibited. When the PICJ poses the question, was launching the proceedings prohibited by international law, what in fact the PICJ is declaring is that international law itself is a permissive system. Behavior is lawful if there is no rule prohibiting it. Now, the alternative would be what is termed a prohibitive system. Some might look then to uh, military bases and such. There are some examples of prohibitive systems, but these are far and few between and not anything you need to concern yourself with now. So the lesson then that we take away from the Boz Court and Lotus decision is that international law is a permissive system. This is relevant in considering the sources of international law. Now, the second case that we should examine is the Wimbledon case. The Wimbledon case. And the Wimbledon case involves the, tr- the Treaty of Versailles. All right, so we call then Germany lost the first inter-European war between 14 and 18. And in the end, the Versailles Treaty was drafted by the Allied forces and imposed on Germany. Germany was told, you have the choice of either signing this treaty or we return to war. Now, in the treaty was a provision, a provision that allowed for international access to a German canal, the Kiel Canal. Now, of course, normally, as we've said, a sovereign state has jurisdiction over its territories, and this wouldn't necessarily include the waterways. The German canal, the Kiel Canal, is in Germany. The Kiel Canal is in Germany, and because it's in Germany, Germany would have jurisdiction and would be permitted to decide who may and who may not travel the waterways. Now as we said, the Treaty of Versailles includes a provision that allows for international access to the Kiel Canal. Well, The Wimbledon, which is an English ship flying a French flag, arrives to the Kiel Canal and is prevented from proceeding. Germany, in fact, refuses, denies access. They argue that this is a breach of German sovereignty. Now, they go a little bit further than that, and the question that is then presented, since this ultimately ends up before the PICJ, the question that is then presented is whether or not a treaty can be reconciled with sovereignty. Why is Germany asking this question? Well, what we have with the treaty is a qualification or even a a constriction being placed on a state's sovereignty. So what Germany is arguing is that a unilateral surrender of sovereignty is at odds, cannot be reconciled then with the notion of sovereignty, so either you enjoy sovereignty or you do not. The argument then is that consents to restrictions run counter to state sovereignty in its essence. Before examining what the court decided, let us try to deduce based upon the argument what the court was likely to decide. Now consider this. If the court were to agree with Germany's position that, ultimately, no consent to a restriction upon sovereignty can itself be reconciled with the doctrine of state sovereignty, then what are the implications? As many of you will have guessed it, it means, in fact, that international law is impossible. There is no way of any treaty Being adopted between nation states, or no possibility for a lawful treaty, since every treaty is going to involve some form of consent to restrictions upon sovereignty. So, yes, you guessed it, ultimately the PICJ deemed that sovereignty can be reconciled with consensual restrictions upon sovereignty. Consensual restrictions. Now, someone points to this and will say, ah, yes, but you said at the outset that the Allied forces imposed the Treaty of Versailles on Germany. And I say, yes, they did. Now, bear in mind, Germany still signed the treaty. Germany had the choice. It could have refused. Then, of course, war would have followed, would have ensued, but they chose then to sign it. So they consented to this restriction. Of course, we could and go a little bit further and ask questions about whether a form of coerced consent is permitted, but that is a discussion for another day. Now, two cases, the Boz Court and Lotus, and the Wimbledon case, and two very important lessons, not only for the nature of the international legal framework, but also for the sources of international law. The first lesson is that international law is a positivist system. The rules are created by the consent of states. They do not flow from elsewhere. Now that's important to note because of our earlier sessions on the two points of origin of international law. Now recall what Francisco de Vittoria said. He spoke about a jus gentium, a law of nations or a law of peoples if you prefer, and how these universal Rights and responsibilities bind all rational peoples. These exist in nature. Following then the Treaty of Westphalia, following the Bosch Court and Lotus and the Wimbledon decision, what becomes clear then is that we have now settled on an international legal framework built on state sovereignty, meaning built on a positivist system, not on a moral one, not on a religious one, not on a natural one, but rather a positivist one. The second important point is that states are bound by the restrictions they consent to. In short, if a state signs a treaty, we presume that the state intends on honouring the obligations that it signs up to. Courts will hold them to it. Now this brings us back to Article 38 of the ICJ statute, and which lessons are relevant then from Wimbledon and Lotus for the sources of international law. This brings us back then to Article 38 of the ICJ sources, and the relevance then of Wimbledon and Bozcourt and Lotus for the sources of international law. Now Article 38 specifies A, B, C and D. Treaties, customary international law, general principles, judicial decisions, and the writings of the most highly qualified publicists. Now, how does the ICJ approach these sources of international law? Well, the first thing is that these are non-exhaustive. Non-exhaustive, there are potentially other sources of international law. Recall what we said, international law is a consent-based system, meaning... If a couple of states agree to bind themselves in some way other than a treaty, then, as per the lesson that we gained from Wimbledon, the court will hold the state to that commitment. So, this is a non-exhaustive list. There is also no rigid hierarchy between them. And we have seen instances where treaties come in conflict with general principles, or treaties come in conflict with customary international law, and then the arguments are being made as to which one the court should ultimately uphold. Another lesson, important lesson in relation to the judicial decisions themselves. Because international law is a consent-based system, judicial decisions have no precedent They do not have any type of precedent effect. What does this mean? It simply means that the decisions will only bind the parties to the dispute. Now, why is that? Well, again, going back to what we said, international law is a consent-based system. The court, very different than, say, from the Supreme Court of the UK, the court cannot make any law can only apply the law. So the decision ultimately, as we said, doesn't have any value in terms of precedent. Rather, it is only relevant for the parties themselves. A final lesson based upon the reading, a more in-depth reading of these judgments, of course, is that general principles are primarily used to fill gaps in either custom or in treaty. Rarely will a court, or in fact I don't think it's ever happened, where a court would identify a general principle and find that to be superior to a treaty. Now, With this foundation in place, the focus of the next couple of lectures is going to be primarily on treaties, uh, which is referred to as the workhorse of international law, but then also customary law, which is very relevant. Now I'm going to dedicate an entire session to treaties, that is the next one or the one coming up. So let us then tackle now customary international law and time permitting, I might say a few words then about general principles as well. So with customary international law, now understand what do we mean when we say customary international law. Societies engage in a number of practices, what we would refer to then as general practices. They engage in these practices, they might engage in a type of diplomatic interactions, there are certain standards emerge in the way that societies interact or in the way that states interact with one another. And these general practices, what distinguishes them from treaties, is that they are not codified in a treaty. Rather, these are just a series of general practices. No, eventually some of these practices acquire force of law. Eventually, some of these practices acquire force of law. There are two requirements according to international law. The first one, well, as I've said many times already, it must be a general practice. And the second is that it is accepted as law or it possesses the Latin term opinio juris. I'm not sure which one it is. Now, what is a general practice? Well, this is almost to be examined on a case-by-case basis. Consider a few questions. Is a general practice... Could a general practice be regional, or must it be global? How many generations before it becomes a general practice? Whose practice? If we're referring then to general practice in the high seas, do we look at the practices of ships flying Swiss flags, for example? Why are we raising, why are we singling out Switzerland? Well, it is landlocked. Or are we likely to prefer states with a long history of maritime activity? The same thing could be posed if you think in terms of space exploration. How do we determine general practices in terms of space exploration? Do we look at the activities of all countries? Well, of course not, in that most countries have not been in space. In fact, there's only a handful who have. And finally, when looking at practices, are we only interested in actions or are we also interested in utterances, statements, things that representatives of states say? Next. In terms of the general practice, a general practice acquires force of law if it is a general practice. We saw that there's terms as to which ones qualify, but there also has to be this form of generalization. And by this we mean widespread agreement that it is a general practice. Now what is the standard? Is it consensus, majority decision, or so on? So there are some complexities surrounding that. Now, according to the decisions, the relevant decisions, what we learn is that when it comes to general practices, the court is going to look first off at the material acts of states. What have states done? So we imagine that a state signs a treaty. State A signs a treaty with state B, in which it codifies a particular practice And then a complaint is brought by State C against State A, alleging that State A is in violation of a general practice. In trying to determine whether there is this general practice, the court may look to the treaty, even though it does not involve State C but look to a provision within the treaty and say, aha, this provision here that state A has assented to, it has assented to in six or seven or maybe even ten treaties. The fact that so many states in the region are assenting to this particular provision could give rise then to a general practice. So material acts of states. The court will also look to resolutions of international organizations, and here we're thinking specifically of the United Nations with emphasis on the General Assembly. Now, I mentioned to you before that there's uncertainty around whether the state or whether a general practice requires an action or an utterance is sufficient, and what the court has said is that material statements can also provide evidence of a general practice and here we will look to declarations that are made by heads of states, consider statements that are given at the United Nations, for example, or even the votes, the manner in which they vote in an international meeting. Now that is used to determine whether there is a practice, first off, and second, whether it is generalized. The second element that I mentioned is that it possesses opinio juris. And by this we mean that it is, the general practice itself, is accepted as law. Now, being accepted as law does not simply mean that they accept that it's general practice, that a state accepts that there is a legal obligation to comply with that general practice. Now, if we can use an example, many heads of states will travel to Other states, and when they arrive, there will often be a a military parade, sometimes they will figuratively roll out a red carpet and such. Now, even if we engage, states engage in this practice routinely, repeatedly, it would be very difficult to argue that there is a legal obligation to provide a visiting head of state with a parade or a red carpet. This practice has to do far more with etiquette than it does with law. And etiquette or diplomacy, this is a different normative system. It is not a legal system. So we look then to see, is the general practice itself accepted as law? Well, what is evidence of acceptance? Well, As I mentioned earlier, uh, General Assembly resolutions Signing up to a General Assembly resolution, that would be evidence of acceptance of the legal status. Um, And again, and this is interesting, as I said to you before, the treaty itself. So engaging in a general practice, evidence of engaging in a general practice is often the same type of evidence that we deploy to show that this general practice is accepted as law. Um, Okay, so in passing, I draw your attention to the um, Havana case or the paquet, P-A-Q-E-T-E, the Paquette Havana case, H-A-B-A-N-A, and um, a, it's worth reading, worth examining for what it says about the method that the court adopts when trying to identify custom. Now, let us say that a custom has been established. Does this mean that every state is now bound in perpetuity to comply with this custom? Framed differently, can a state object to a customary rule? Well, the answer is yes. The standard, they must make their objection known. And for this, we turn to the fisheries case. It involves Norway versus England. Now, one thing about Norway is that Norway in addition to having, then, the land itself, also has a large number of very small islands uh, interspersed across, then, its coastline. Now, the normal way of delineating the territorial waters of a state is to begin with the coastline itself and then to go out a certain distance. Because of all of these islands, what would in fact happen would be that Norway would lose most of its territorial sea if it abided by this standard approach towards drawing the coastline. So instead, what Norway has done has been to adopt an artificial baseline, just a straight line that they draw. And this is the maritime boundaries that it presumes others will comply with with. So this is a combination of history and necessity. Now at some point an English uh, fishing ship ends up in Norwegian waters, Um, it is stopped then by the Norwegians, the Norwegian coast guard, they stop them and then ultimately this leads to a dispute before the ICJ. Norway argues that there is a customary rule by which the artificial baseline Is the basis then for their maritime boundaries. England's response was that it didn't know. That was the argument that it made. Now let's bear in mind Norway and England are neighbors, they are separated then by the North Sea, but of course there is going to be a lot of interaction between these two maritime powers. Moreover, Norway was in the habit of making a variety of declarations, statements, reporting then on the nature of their artificial baseline. So the court's response to England's argument that it did not know was simply to state it must have known. It is a maritime power, and this is one of its neighbours, it seems rather childish to suggest that somehow, oops, I had no idea that Norway was operating in this manner. Now this brings us then to the question, can a state object to a customary rule in the way that England was objecting to this customary rule? The answer according to the court, the answer according to the ICJ, is that yes, they can, but they're required then, first off, to make their objection known, and second, to object persistently. England neither made its objection known, nor did it object persistently, meaning this general practice is a customary rule that England is now bound by. Final point then about customary law. Does breaking a custom end it? Does that breaking of the custom is that evidence that a state no longer consents to that general practice? Now, let us be clear. As we said, international law is a consent-based system. So if a country were to breach a treaty or in this case, as we are looking at, breach a custom, does that bring the custom to an end? Is that evidence that the general practice is no longer a general practice, or at least that it's no longer accepted as law? And the answer, not exactly. The answer, not exactly. Now, we reach this conclusion through an examination of the Nicaragua case. The Nicaragua case involves US-trained Nicaraguan militia Militia that laid landmines, that carried out small invasions, that attacked oil installations, and in fact, ultimately committed a large number of crimes, a large number of crimes that amounted to the use of force. So the claim is brought, the complaint is brought against the United States. As I said, these are US-trained Nicaraguan militia. So it's Nicaragua that is raising a complaint against the Americans. Now the matter is examined by the court as to whether or not there is a prohibition in customary international law against the use of force. Now yes, we know the use of force is prohibited in the UN charter, meaning a treaty. But for technical reasons, this was not dealt with. You can read the case if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that. So for now, just know that the ICJ was examining whether there was a customary rule prohibiting the use of force. Now consider it through this lens. Many states claim they will not use force against other states, but many of them ultimately do. And all one has to do is look at the bombing campaigns or the assassinations or the disappearances, abductions that have been carried out by some states against individuals in other states. What the court ultimately did was to focus on the general behavior of a state as well as, and this is important here, the general intent. And the general intent as it is deduced from the general behavior or the standard conduct. In other words, the court itself was not limiting its examination to the conduct, meaning seeing that the United States had funded this or had funded and trained this militia, seeing that the United States had bombed a number of countries. They did not stop themselves, they did not stop themselves and say, ah, look at that, that must be evidence that they do not abide by the custom. They went a little bit further and said, let us consider what the United States has said. And in the vast majority of instances, what the United States says is that the use of force against other states is prohibited. Does it engage in this practice occasionally? It certainly does, but the statement is used then as the basis for deducing a general intent, though the court didn't just limit itself ultimately to exceptional conduct, such as the training of the Nicaraguan militia, meaning what a state says is equally important in making a determination as to whether there is a desire to end a particular customary practice. So I'll end there in terms of customary international law. There is far more to be said about it. Unfortunately, there is insufficient time. So I will conclude with just a couple of quick words on general principles. Now, as we said before, in paragraph C, of Article 38, the ICJ statute, it specifies the general principles of law recognized by civilized nations. Now, the civilized nations statement is largely anachronistic. This was born during the period of colonization, where Europe would distinguish between itself as civilized and all non-European as non-civilized, meaning only the general principles of Europe were a valid source of law. I don't think anyone would take this Eurocentric approach, or at least I hope no one would. And so as a result, most publicists, most international lawyers will disregard the civilized nation's claim. So instead what we're looking at then are general principles. Now as I said to you before, general principles are largely there to fill gaps. If there is a gap in a treaty, if there is a gap in customary international law, then we can turn to the general principles to fill that gap. Now, consider it this way when it comes to general principles. General principles will rarely help to resolve a dispute. It is not as though we will find the answer within a general principle. But rather, the general principle can can prove helpful in pointing the court in a particular direction, in encouraging a specific type of interpretation. Now when we say general principles, sometimes what we look at then are the unilateral declarations that are made by states. These are relevant, but what are these evidence of? They're not evidence of a treaty, they could potentially be evidence of general intent, as we saw in relation to customary international law. But the court will normally treat a unilateral declaration as evidence of a general principle. Being evidence of a general principle, it can be used to point the court in a particular direction in how it should resolve a given dispute. So it's good to be mindful of general principles that are out there, knowing then, as I've said a couple of times already, it is more of a gap filler than anything else. Now with that in mind, that brings our discussion on customary international law. To an end, please always keep in mind when thinking about how international law is made that there is no concrete way of making international law, largely we deal with this on a case-by-case basis. Nevertheless, we can look to the ICJ statute To identify the sources of international law, what the court itself will rely upon when dealing with disputes, and that gives us a pretty good idea of how international law is ultimately made. In our next session we will look to treaties then, which, to reiterate, is the workhorse of international law and what all of you must become very familiar with if you are to develop mastery over the subject matter. Thanks and see you next week.